In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Before I get going on the sermon, a couple of comments, a personal privilege. One of them is to thank all of you who, after receiving the letter that I will be retiring in May, Lou and I are very appreciative of all of your very, very kind comments, all the emails and the notes that you have sent us. Uh, we are the, really grateful for all the comments that, that, that you have sent to us. Uh, it's, uh, I also want to tell you that the wardens have met with uh, the bishop. They met with the bishop on Wednesday to begin the conversation for a transition and a search process for a new rector. And the vestry will gather with the wardens and a, a, a consultant from the diocese on November the 4th where they will spend a full day to begin the, process, the search process for the next rector of St. John's Church. Uh, I think uh, you should be calm and you should be in confidence that the search process will end up with a wonderful, wonderful candidate to be the next rector, the 15th rector of St. John's Church. I have to tell you that uh, every time that I go to a church conference somewhere, uh, but, uh, most of my colleagues come to me and they, they'll start asking questions, kind of like the Herodians and the Pharisees, you know, with malice in their heart. And they'll come over to me and they'll say, oh, how old are you now? <laughs> or they'll say something like, how long have you been at St. John's? And so I always think that... Uh, uh, they're like piranhas, you know, they come at you and they start biting away. But I know that they mean well, and mostly I know that they know what I know, uh, that being the rector of St. John's Church is the best job in the Episcopal Church, and they know that, and they're angling for that. So you're going to have a lot of wonderful candidates who want to be the rector of the church that is the best job in the Episcopal Church. Uh, the wardens will be sending a letter next week to begin uh, to outlining the process by which we will be uh, participating. Uh, I also want to tell you, my last time before I went to uh, going to bed, my wife says, are you nervous about going to church the first Sunday after this letter has gone out? And I said, no, of course I'm not nervous. And this morning at the 745 service, I forgot the prayer book, I forgot the bulletin, I forgot everything. So as we begin the service, I had to run back out to get the prayer book and the bulletin and everything else to begin the service. So maybe I'm not as calm as I would like to pretend that I, that I am. You know, all of you know my wife, Lou, and she also told me that she said, you know, you're about to enter the uh, lame duck uh, process over there at St. John's Church. And uh, she knows me very well. She said, you know, you're a very bossy guy. You're a very bossy person. And so, so you might want to start practicing about this lame duck thing. So yesterday I walked around the house going quack, 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 <laughs> trying to learn more about it. My, the first time that I was on a, at a service here when the president attended church service, it was Bill Clinton. This was back in 1994. And after Bill Clinton came to church, a couple of my friends called me up and they said, well, did you change the lessons? Did you change the lessons because the president came to church? And I said, no. You know, I was taught whether the president comes to church or anybody comes to church, you always use the lessons that are assigned for the particular day. And so on the Sunday after um, I send a letter of... Uh, uh, telling you about my retirement, what do you do? Well, you pay attention to the lessons that are assigned for the day, which is what I'm about to do, and we're going to shift gears to talk about the lessons for the day. I think all of us, all of us, have some words or some phrases or something that are always graven in our minds that become unforgettable. They become sort of defining sentences, defining words. They're the words that help us focus, that enable us to see more clearly things, to understand things more deeply, and to feel more fully. 
All of us have some words that uh, we remember, that we have memorized because of some instance in our life. Uh, all of us know about Elizabeth Barrett when she met Robert Browning, and she finally found love, and she wrote down, how do, I, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and the breadth and the height my soul can reach. And you know that this is all about passion, and it defines passion to some sort of way or another. It's all about love. One of my favorite novels of all times is A Tale of Two Cities, and I love the very end of A Tale of Two Cities, and it's Sidney Carlton at the very end of it who says, it is a far, far better thing than I do than I have ever done before. It is a far, far better rest than I have ever known as he sacrifices himself. And you say, that sacrificial love. You understand that because it helps to define sacrificial love. Miguel Unamuno, the great Spanish philosopher, finishes a book. The name of the book is entitled El Sentimiento Trágico de la Vida. El Sentimiento Trágico de la Vida. Only a Spaniard would write a book entitled, loosely translated, The Tragic Sentiment of Life. But he wrote that book, The Tragic Sentiment of Life, and at the very end of it he says, Que Dios no nos dé paz, pero sí la gloria. May God deny us peace, but grant us glory. And I think it defines to some extent or another discipleship, the call to discipleship. And it's not just books. You know, I won't go through everything that I can remember because it'll bore you to death, but I tell you, I love the movie Casablanca. Have you ever seen the movie Casablanca? I've seen it a gazillion times, I tell you. And every time that I see Casablanca, I always laugh that, love that line, we'll always have Paris. And every time that I hear it and see it on TV, I say, don't leave her. Don't let her go. We're talking about Ingrid Bergman here. Don't let her go. Whatever it is, there's no higher calling than to be with Ingrid Bergman. And I tell you all of this because the passage from today is one of those. It's one of those that's inscribed in our hearts. I learned that first in English from the King James Bible. And it is when Jesus rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I always love the language of the King James uh, in that particular case because render always means a response to grace. Render, it's an obligation, a response to grace. And I love it when it says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. I don't want to jump to the conclusion of my sermon. So it's important to analyze where we are in, the particular, in Matthew's gospel. Just a few, weeks, a few days ago, if you were following the gospel, you would know that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, what you and I call Palm Sunday, the Palm Sunday experience. And on a daily basis, he's been going into Jerusalem, and he's been getting into trouble, and he's been exciting the people. The masses are very excited about him, but the people who are the officials, whether they are religious officials or whether they are the public officials, are very, very upset with him. And he's been doing it over and over. And last Sunday, you all here at St. John's Church read that passage about the wedding garment, how he invites everybody to come on in. Everybody's invited to come in, not just those who first received the note. And the people, the officials, are all upset with him. They just can't stand it, and they're trying to entrap him. What is beautiful about this is that it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, which are two completely opposite political parties in the time. The Herodians were the collaborators. They worked with Herod. They worked collecting the taxes. They were happy with the Romans being in charge. They are the collaborators. And then over on the other side are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the complete opposite of that. They detested the Romans. They detested the taxes. They detested an outside group being able to tell them who they are and where, where to worship. But as we all know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
And you can find out that the Pharisees and the Herodians conspire with each other. And on this particular occasion, they come to Jesus and they try to trap Jesus, inviting him to consider. Now, if it were today, if this were happening today, you know, Jesus would be a ratings maker for TV. Everybody in town is all excited about Jesus. Everybody's going to listen to what he's got to say. So you can imagine in today's language that the people from the, let's say, CNN and Fox News are already there, and they've got their cameras focused on Jesus, and they've got their microphones coming out, and they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And they say, what's he going to bring up? What are the Pharisees and the Herodians going to ask him? How are they going to challenge Jesus and so on? And you can imagine the tension, and they've got right there, they've got the cameras, they've got the, the microphone, they're waiting for it. And what the Herodians and the Pharisees come up with is not the answer to salvation. They don't ask him about salvation. They don't ask him about love. They don't ask him about forgiveness. They don't ask him about grace. They don't ask him about justice. What do they ask him? They ask him about taxes. What you and I face every 15th of April, the thing that we have to live with over and over that determines for us our participation in our social world. And so, you can imagine, Jesus is there, they bring the cameras forward, they bring the microphones forward, you can imagine these two reporters trying to get an answer, what's he going to say, what's he going to say? Now, Jesus finds himself in a bind. If he says, pay it to Caesar, he gets in trouble with the people who have been following him. If he says, no, you can't pay anything to Caesar, he gets in trouble with the Roman authorities. And let me tell you, the Roman authorities do not like rebels. They don't do rebels. They punish the rebels. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place. It's sort of the double bind in which sometimes you and I find ourselves in life. Damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. The cameras inch forward. Wolf Britzler is right there. Fox News, you've got to find a good reporter, Fox News. It's harder to find one of those. But, uh, <laughs> But why don't we say Chris Matthews, Chris Matthews, Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is the one that comes forward. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? They wait with bated breath. I think the question for today is this. How do we deal with conflicting claims in our life? How do you deal with conflicting claims in your life? William Willman, who was the chaplain at Duke University a number of years ago, tells a story, tells a story about leading a Bible study for Duke University students. And he said that the group that was gathered there was split. This is what belongs to Caesar. This is what belongs to God. You give this to Caesar, you give this to God. And they were arguing back and forth about what goes to God, what goes to, the, uh, what goes to Caesar. I'm going back and forth, I'm going back and forth. Everybody's getting more uh, uh, punishing with each other, uh, separating themselves from each other. And finally said there was one wise student who came up with what he thought was a great answer to all of us. And the man said, you know, when it comes to what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, he says, we can never be sure what the answer is. And the student said, maybe Jesus wants us to be permanently uneasy. Maybe Jesus wants us to be permanently uneasy about how we make our decisions. One of my favorite novels of all time is a novel entitled Sacred Hunger, written by Barry Unsworth that won the Booker Prize about 15 years or so ago. And it is, takes place in, 19th century, in the 19th century, and it involves a family that is involved in the uh, triangle slave trade. 
And one of the protagonists in the novel is a guy named Matthew Paris, who is a doctor, but because he wants to marry the woman that he loves, who is of a higher, part of the higher caste system, he goes ahead and becomes the doctor for a slave ship in order to be able to earn the money, to be able to approach the woman that he loves, to be able to marry her. And then by the end of the novel, just a classic time, you know, he says, and I'm quoting here, because my life was in ruins, I thought it unimportant what I did what I assisted in. And then he goes on to say, this is an offense to reason as well as to faith. And here's the key line in the whole part of it. We have a duty to be vigilant. We have a duty to be vigilant. I say to you, notice this. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Jesus doesn't tell the people of that time, give to Caesar this and give to God that. He doesn't tell us exactly what belongs to God, and he doesn't tell us exactly what belongs to Caesar. I think that what Jesus wants us to do is to be permanently uneasy, and I think Jesus wants us to be always, always vigilant about how we make our decisions, the important decisions in our life. And one of the questions that I ask myself all the time, and I suspect you ask yourself all the time, is this, When do we cross the fine line between valid affection for and loyalty to the state and idolatry to the state? Think about that. It's a very fine line, a very fine line that can be crossed over and over, and that fine line is valid affection and loyalty to the state and not let it border into idolatry of the state. I have to tell you that I don't know the correct answer for this. And that's because you and I have to wrestle with it over and over and over in all of the places of our lives. Have you been following the NFL stuff? Players kneeling, other folks arguing about kneeling during the national anthem and so on and so forth. I have to tell you, I'm an immigrant to this country. For those of you who are visiting our congregation, I'm an immigrant to this country. And I have to tell you, I owe this country everything. I owe this country everything. I think this country is the best country in the world. It has given me opportunity that I would never, ever have. I have loyalty and I have affection for this country. But I also know that my principal commitment is to my baptismal covenant. And I want to tell you that I don't know that I would, if it ever came to me, I don't know that I would kneel during the national anthem. I don't know that I would be able to do it, but I have to consider that the people who are doing it are doing it because they're calling forth what's in our baptismal covenant. The baptismal covenant calls us to respect the dignity of every human being. And what they're saying is we want to be respected, and we want to have the dignity of every human being that is accorded to everybody else in this society. I don't know that I would be kneeling, but I want to tell you, I have to pay attention to what they're saying. And I have to pay attention to what they're saying because that's what our baptismal covenant calls for. It's what it calls forth in me. One of the things that you and I need to realize is that we belong to God. I hope you know that. In the 43rd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, it says, uh, I know you by name, you are mine. In the 45th chapter, the one that was just read a little while ago, it says, I named you, I gave you your surname, you are mine, you belong to me. And by the 49th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, God says, I have your name inscribed in the palm of my hand. 
It's like God has a tattoo on his hand with your name and my name on it, reminding us to whom we belong and to whom our allegiances can be and the calling that we have to answer to that allegiance. This past uh, weekend, I had the opportunity to be at St. Paul's Church in Patterson, New Jersey. I served there as rector from that church from 1982 to 1988. And when I first got there in 1982, the custom of that church was to, when the offering came, they have a center aisle, unlike St. John's Church, the only flaw in this building. We don't have a center aisle. But when they came down the center aisle, they would come down the center aisle, and they would start uh, singing the national anthem, and they would bring out the flag. And I thought to myself, I think we've crossed a, a line here. I remember thinking to myself, the language of American civil religion, I didn't know it back then, but I think that's what we were talking about, American civil religion. And so I did, innocent as I was and young as I was, we did a bunch of classes about symbols. The symbol of the church is the cross, the symbol of this country is the, is, is the flag. The symbol of the church is the resurrection and any form that we can experience it. Uh, the symbol of, of, of our nation is the, is the national anthem. And the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. The two of them don't necessarily go hand in hand, and we confuse our religion with American civil religion. I want to tell you, I almost got driven out of that church over that. It was, I was very naive. I thought they were going to buy me another Amtrak ticket to go back from where I came because it created such a hubbub in the congregation, and it was about that confusion. I think Jesus is inviting us. Jesus is inviting us to consider who owns your heart and who owns your soul? Where is your conscience? What is your sense of right and wrong? And to whom do you render what in the difficult decisions of our life? What I appreciate about this story is this. No easy answers are given by Jesus. Jesus does not give you or me any guidelines we are left with tension. Jesus does not solve the struggle, but what I think Jesus does is that Jesus defines the struggle. I think Jesus makes the conflict we experience a legitimate experience. And there is no formulaic response to competing interests. We, like Jesus, are called to sort it out in the court of our consciences. Matthew says that at the end of this interchange, that Jesus' critics leave Jesus. They were amazed, and they left him and went away. I think they felt uneasy. I think they felt extremely uneasy, and knowing that they had to become tolerant. I don't know how you plan to leave church today. I don't know if you leave worship experience today amazed. But if you leave uneasy and promising to be vigilant, I think that Jesus would be pleased. Amen.